And then, since his wife was mad, he went and cut the head off an elephant and sewed it on his son so his son could have a head again. What? Oh my gosh, polytheism is so crazy. Actually, it might not be polytheism. I'm Austin. I'm Nathan. And welcome, welcome to, to the, the world, world of religions. Welcome back to the world of religions. It's been a really, really long time since our last episode. It certainly um, has And that's been. because college happened and we are seniors and got busy. But we're graduated now, which means we're not as busy anymore because we're both currently unemployed. Yeah. And we have bachelor's degrees in religious studies, which means we're actually now qualified to be talking about this stuff. So yeah, we are marginally on paper more qualified to tell you these things. Exactly. So yeah, now you can tell your friends this is super official and they should totally listen to it. And uh, since, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, what else are they going to do with their time? Exactly. Make a podcast? Who does that? <laughs> Speaking of the pandemic, we are unable to be meeting together, obviously, so we're using Zencaster, which allows you to do a podcast with a friend over the internet, or with many people over the internet, and it's really awesome and useful, and they're doing a pandemic promotion thing where you can have as many people as you want, so we're not sponsored by them, I just thought I'd give them a shout out, because their program is useful. Woo, yeah, thanks. very handy. Alright, so as far as a topic... We have Hinduism, as promised, like a year ago. Even though it has been months, we are following through on our promise to continue talking about Hinduism. If you remember from last time, we went and visited a Hindu temple. Totally take a listen to that again. It might give some context. It might not. We might talk about entirely different things. We'll see. But uh, yeah, we are going to focus on the Hindu gods, which is a really interesting phenomenon. Polytheism but not really, as was said in the intro. Yeah, so kind of what we were alluding to humorously in our opener was that it gets really difficult with a lot of religions to codify them by a single word. So you can say polytheism, many gods, monotheism, a single god. But then you get all these other flavors like henotheism, and we'll probably talk more about these different concepts in future episodes, but Today, as we're focusing on Hinduism, one way that you run into this issue is with the matter of a great plurality of gods, beings that are considered divine. You have like, what, 330 million? Yeah, traditionally the number is 330 million. That's a lot of gods. It is a lot of gods. That's a big world of religion. And yet at the same time, there's only one. Brahman. Exactly. And to clarify, Brahman, transliterated into English, B-R-A-H-M-A-N. There are other words in Hinduism like Brahmin, which is with an I, which is the priestly class. There is Brahma, who is one of the Trimurti. Those are the three great gods of Hinduism. But specifically what we're referring to when we say Brahman is this notion of the supreme god or the supreme absolute there are multiple ways to refer to him, it, all. And this is this Brahman concept is kind of where a lot of people would define Hinduism as a pantheistic religion, as God in everything. Because Brahman, 
is the essence of the universe. There is no place that Brahman is not. There is no thing that is not Brahman. He totally permeates everything that exists and everything that is. So in one sense, you can call Hinduism a monotheistic, pantheistic faith. Brahman is all. Right. And, you know, to give a sense of just how complicated religions are and how inadequately we're going to be able to treat this in a podcast, there's debates as to, you know, is Hinduism monotheistic? Is it pantheistic? Or is it panentheistic? Which is a fine line that I think neither of us are even fully conversant in. But I've seen I've seen both in my research. Some people saying Hinduism is pantheistic, some saying it's panentheistic. Right. And it's even it changes over time because the earlier Vedic texts, like the Rig Veda, had a lot more emphasis on the plurality of gods. They talked a lot about natural spirits, a lot about these this plethora of divine entities, one for each phenomenon of nature, one for each effect you had going on. You have Agni, who's the the divine being for fire, which is just all fire, and he kind of persists throughout the entirety of Hinduism, mostly through the sacrificial fire, the fire that they used to burn incense and other things to their gods. But originally he was a fully independent entity that had his own stories and myths and whatnot. You have gods of individual types of plants, you have gods of individual types of rocks. You have just a huge plurality of distinct entities. Then as Hinduism developed later throughout history, philosophers got into it and they started talking about what is the essence of the soul? What is the essence of the universe? Then you start having the idea of the universal Brahman. So things change over time and Hinduism is a massively ancient religion. It's the beginning date is very unclear because it's, it's un, do you want to go off the writing of the books or do you want to go off the practice? But it's put somewhere between 2500 and 3500 BCE. Compare that with Christianity, that's 3500 years older. So a religion that's over 5000 years. Right. And to even further complicate the picture, one of the difficulties is that even the term Hinduism is a more recent invention. Exactly. It's debated whether it was developed by the British Raj as a way to classify all Indian religions, or whether it was a development of the Brahmin class. But either way, part of the reason for the complexity is that you have a catch-all term referring to thousands, if not millions, of distinct religious traditions that are all related, but distinct in their own ways. And so you can see how it gets up to 330 million gods pretty quickly. Exactly. If you have a bunch of religious traditions all merged into one, the gods multiply. Another thing for this, and I'm, I, I'm not sure the exact connection to this, but a lot of the gods have multiple forms or names or essences, whatever you want to call it. And this further complicates the question of whether there is one or many god, even in the instance of each individual god. There's a lot of gods, and we've looked at some of them. And we can look at one of the holy families. And that holy family is uh, Shiva. Shiva, as we talked about earlier, one of the gods worshipped at the temple we visited, is the destroyer. Destroyer of evil, destroyer of the world, destroyer of a lot of things. And he has two wives that are important, most important. And those are Sati and Parvati. And he has several sons, but the most interesting is Ganesha, and all of those gods go under different names. So if you look at Shiva, you have Shiva 
Nataraja, or just just Nataraja. You don't necessarily have to say Shiva beforehand, and a lot of the literature doesn't. They just say Nataraja, which is the dancing form of Shiva. You have the Rudra, which is the enraged form. That's the most common when you talk about Shiva's destroyer. And you have, and I'm going to destroy this pronunciation, Dakshinamurthy, which is the yoga form of Shiva. The other ones, you have the the uh, the phallic rock. The uh, lingam figure is the the official term. And so all three of those both represent different aspects of the one god Shiva, but also deal with different things. Nataraja does not do the same things that Rudra does. And it's kind of unclear if it's just Shiva acting as a different entity or two separate entities. And the distinction gets a lot more clear with some of the stories, especially about Sati, which we'll get into later. But only Shiva Nataraja, the dancing form, is the one shown as a human because he's dancing. Yeah, that's the only one where you get worshipped. Otherwise, the Shiva Rudra, Shiva Dakshinamurthy are depicted solely as the phallic rocks, the uh, lingam figures is the official term. So even there, it's unclear whether these are different forms or different beings entirely. And you'll see that when we get to talking about Sati, uh, who is one of Shiva's wives, how the difference of forms is a lot less clear. Right. And so one of the metaphors that I came across as I was doing research for this episode is that uh, Brahman, so that would be the supreme absolute, is sort of like the sun, and the various manifestations of the gods are like rays of sunlight. And so the ways that mm -hmm. humans interact with the ultimate reality is through these various manifestations. Do you think that speaks to kind of what you're talking about, Austin? Maybe, but it gets a little weird when one of the rays destroys the original sun. Oh, and that's okay. kind of what happens with the Sati story. And we'll, it, I think it'll be very interesting when we talk about that. Uh, Sati, as you may be familiar with, is both a goddess and the Hindu, the ancient Hindu practice, it's now illegal, uh, of widows throwing themselves upon the pyres of their husbands and committing ritual suicide. As said, that practice has since been made illegal for both political and religious reasons. There is there is Hindu religious justification for why it's been made illegal, so obviously, like, reformation happens. That's just a thing that happens in religions. But yeah, that spawned from this Sati story. So we can probably get into some of the stories now, and um, we can start off with something a little lighter. Uh, this is a story of Shiva, and how we can see Shiva's activity as destruction, but also recreation. Shiva, the destroyer god, was was meditating in his house in the Alps. And the Alps, the Himalayas. I don't know why I said that. Um, the, the, Alps, Himalayas. the Himalayas, what's the difference? <laughs> Big mountains. <laughs> uh, he was meditating in his house in the Himalayas. And Sarabi, who is a goddess mother of cows, just started giving birth to cows. Lots and lots of cows. The, the story says an untold number of perfectly white cows. So, a bunch of cows. Welcome to the world of religion. <laughs> exactly. And the milk from all these cows started flooding everywhere, though, including the home of Shiva. Now, remember, Shiva is in the Himalayan mountains, so that's a lot of milk. 
and Shiva got really angry that the milk that was slowly filling up his house was disturbing his meditation. Not that it was destroying his flooring or anything, but <laughs> no. Um, his meditation would disturb, so he got really angry, opened up his third eye, and shot lasers at the cows. Naturally. They don't say lasers. They say they say fire, but basically lasers. Right. What else are you going to do if you're one of the mighty gods and there's milk flooding into your meditative space? And as Destroyer, he burned patches on the cow's hides and turned those patches brown and black. And so through his destruction, he caused cows to have spots. And that's their uh, creation myth for cows and why they have spots. Because they used to be perfectly white. They produced too much milk. Shiva got really angry. And now they have spots. Eventually, Shiva got calmed down by the other gods and they offered him a bull. And that bull became the protector of all animals because it stopped Shiva from lasering cows. Huh. And there you go. That, so that is more of like aspects of Shiva. Yeah, it's a good story. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I suppose, what else are you going to do when, you know, you're looking around at the world, you see cows with spots, and you, you wonder why. Yeah. And then the answer comes to you. It's because the great god Shiva shot fire from his forehead because his meditation was interrupted by milk. Yeah, and I think it's important to note, and I think we... Uh, both Nathan and I would agree with this, but it's important to note that just because a religion has an absurd creation story, whether of the world or of the reason cows have spots, for example, doesn't make that religion absurd or all of its practices void. And this is kind of a thing that, you know, critics of religion will also often bring up. You make weird explanations for things you understand, but then we explain them. I think the main point of this story is not necessarily to explain why cows got brown spots but to do a number of practical moral things. Talk about how Shiva in his destruction causes creation. And, you know, Shiva, as we talked about last week, is eventually going to destroy the universe, all of it, so that Brahma can remake it. And there's a continued cycle. And this is a microcosm of that. Shiva uses destructive power to cause something that we know today to be created. Also, maybe the importance of meditation. I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly all the commentaries on this story because yeah. there are thousands and thousands and thousands of them. But I would assume that the importance of meditation and peace is also important to this. He was angry because his meditation was interrupted. And I think that's the main point of creation narratives. And we should not be reductionistic and just say the point of creation narratives is to describe how things were created because there's so much more going on. But that's sort of a right. divert. That's sort of a tangent. Right, but an important one. And yeah. also to note that when we talk about things and we laugh about them, we don't do that to mock the content. It's more like we're trying to actually appreciate this and go, wow, you know, what a phenomenal story. Yeah, it's good. And it's weird, but weird is okay. Yeah, even if you're like, wow, this is weird and wacky. It's like, well, what religion isn't, you know? Hmm. And yeah, as, as mentioned a while ago, we're both Christians, but we'll put Christianity through the blender soon. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, yeah. Dude, we are <laughs> professionals at that. That's what our degree is in. Exactly. You ready for another another Hindu story? Yeah, hit me. I'm ready. I'm ready to hear some more. So this is another one of uh, talking about the forms of gods. This is uh, Parvati, which is uh, Shiva's most popular wife, as far as the the most stories are written about Parvati, and she has a big influence. So this one is less funny and more just really interesting. Well, it's a little funny, but so Parvati. Wife of Shiva. Shiva is the destroyer, god, destroyer of evil. So his wife's got to be tough. His wife's got to help him fight demons. 
there's this demon named Daruk, uh, or an Asura, and Shiva needs to destroy this demon Daruk, and enlists the help of his wife. And she takes on a ferocious, violent energy and becomes what's known as Kali. And Kali is well known in Hinduism as a destroyer goddess, also the wife of uh, Shiva because she's also Parvati. And one of the biggest temples in Calcutta is actually dedicated to Kali, and they do lots and lots of blood sacrifice, animals, not people, to this day. It's actually super interesting how that still goes on. But regardless, Parvati metamorphizes into Kali and helps Shiva destroy Daruk. But Kali is so enraged and empowered by this energy, uh, Shiva can't calm her down. So what he does is he turns himself into a crying baby to engage her motherly instincts. And then she gets all mothery and calms down the poor crying baby and reverts back to Parvati. Huh. Go ahead. That, like, even though it's so extreme and obviously, you know, mythological, you can see, I think, a lot of the sense in that. Yeah. And this this brings up the uh, the Hindu concept of Shakti. And in fact, this is like one of the key narratives around the idea of Shakti. And which... what is Shakti, Austin? Okay, Shakti is feminine power, girl power, one might say. It's more more theoretically, it's pure, untamed, chaotic energy. You could ter- certainly interpret that in sexist ways, and I'm sure it, it has been the cause of some sexist beliefs. But regardless, it is the power innate in women that is chaotic and untamable and can manifest in a number of ways. But in this story, you can even find it's not purely stereotypically stay at home, be a mother, because... Shakti is what causes Parvati to turn into Kali, this extremely powerful destructive force that destroys evil, destroys the demon Daruk. But it also, because it's Shakti, feminine energy and is associated with motherhood, is what causes Kali to revert to Parvati when Shiva becomes a crying baby. It's this dichotomous, benevolent, destructive, powerful, and giving force that's related specifically to the female the goddesses and a uh, human woman. Yeah. The power of the divine mother to protect all that is innocent and childlike in the world from demons. Yeah, exactly. And so one of the things that keeps striking me as you tell these stories is how they're maybe anthropomorphic is the word I'm looking for. Okay. As you hear them, it's both very, archetypal and exaggerated and extreme and you know it's the kind of thing that you could read about in a novel and go like wow how imaginative and crazy but they also have such straightforward or maybe not straightforward but such potent resonances with regular human experience yeah so like obviously mothers do not literally transform into huge angry forms to fight off demons but in a metaphorical Oh, yeah. But in a metaphorical sense, it's kind of what happens all the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. What other stories do we have? We we talked about Ganesh a little bit at the beginning. Yes, we can talk about Ganesh. Ganesh is, uh, Ganesh is, Ganesha, you can both, I've seen both, um, is super famous. Uh, if you've ever seen a Hindu statue, idol, image, whatever, of a guy with an elephant head, that's Ganesha. He is everywhere. It's like one of the most commonly depicted Hindu deities. If I mean, he's not one of the big three, or even necessarily the most powerful. He's actually considered a lesser deity, but 
as far as quantity of depiction. He's way up there. Uh, Ganesha is the son of Shiva and Parvati. And so what happened is Parvati, there's actually a number of stories, but this is one of the most interesting versions of it. So that's the one I'm going to tell. And I choose to believe it. <laughs> uh, Shiva was away doing whatever, he, you know, fighting evil, doing, doing his thing. Uh, and Parvati was lonely. And in her loneliness, she started to neglect her personal hygiene because she was sad and alone. She didn't have to dress up for anyone. And there was a lot of dirt and dust and hair that collected, and she found this clod of dirt and dust and hair and whatever, and decided to form a child out of it. So she did. She made a little baby boy and named him Ganesh, or Ganesha, made out of her her body dirt. That is probably a very wooden transliteration of the original story, but yeah, that's that's what it says. And uh, yeah, Ganesh was born, and, or created rather, and, you know, was doing his thing, vibing. And then one day, Shiva came home, and he has not met Ganesh yet, because he's been gone ever since Ganesh has been created. And Ganesh is just sitting in front of the door, as a small child does, blocks the, blocking the doorway. And Shiva tries to open the door, but he can't, and his, his Ganesh is in the way. And he keeps trying, but this, this Ganesh is there, and he gets really mad. Why is this strange child blocking the door to my house? And he pulls out his sword and chops off Ganesh's head. And then Parvati hears about this and is very sad, very angry with Shiva. And, you know, I'm sure Shiva rec remembers the Kali story and is, you know, a little afraid for his life that she's going to tear him to shreds as Kali. Uh, so he freaks out and tries to uh, fix it. So he runs out of the house and finds the first animal he can find. And that happens to be an elephant. And he kills the elephant, cuts off his head, sews it onto the body of Ganesh, and Ganesh was fine. He has a new elephant head now. And and that's Ganesh. <laughs> Super glue. Is there anything it can't fix? Exactly. It's maybe it was Flex Seal, honestly. It could have been Flex Seal. You know, what what are you gonna say when you cut the head off your child who you didn't know? Other than now that's a lot of damage. You know, if if Flex Seal was sold in India, I hope they use Ganesh as as a marketing <laughs> tool. I'm not sure if that would be sacrilegious or not, but I would watch those ads. <laughs> yeah, so that's Ganesh, and he is the god of both the placer and remover of obstacles. Like his father, like his mother, he's got like a double aspect. Shiva is the destroyer, which is a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, uh, Kali slash Parvati is motherly in both her destructive and tender potential. Uh, Ganesh puts objects in the way of, or uh, obstacles in the way of people who need obstacles, like if you're going on a dangerous or foolhardy, rather, journey. And he removes obstacles when you're going on a virtuous or necessary journey. So a lot of people will pray to him or offer sacrifice to him before doing a physical journey, like traveling to a different country or moving cities or moving homes, whatever is going on there, or when they're just making a big life decision, like taking a new job or uh, getting married, something like that, that Ganesh will put obstacles in their way if it's not what they're supposed to be doing, or that he'll remove them if it is what they're supposed to be doing. Huh. That's, yeah. it's a very specific domain. When I first heard you say that, I thought, wow, that's a very specific domain, placing and removing obstacles, but it actually applies to a lot of life. Yeah, and I think that's part of his enormous amount of uh, depiction, is because big life decisions, that's when you go to divine help. Right. Almost everyone is religious in a little bit, in a, in a small sense, and that small sense is usually big life decisions or scary things. So yeah, it makes sense. That's when you go to Ganesh. Yeah.
So think about the elephant boy the next time you have to make a major <laughs> life decision. Thinking about changing jobs, thinking about you know which college you're going to go to, who you're going to marry, any of that. Think of the elephant boy. And if he puts strange obstacles in your way, don't be mad because the elephant boy is protecting you from from I don't know a bad job or something. Is there also a sense in which obstacles can be placed for the purpose of making the journey or stronger i did not see that in any of my research i don't think that's how they interpreted his obstacles necessarily hmm. okay he was to stop journeys that were foolhardy or doomed to fail so that the, the journeyer would not get very far in his foolhardy journey or he was to remove obstacles when the journey was you know useful and beneficial okay that makes sense yeah but perhaps i mean obviously as with all these gods there's such an enormous amount of material on it and the vast majority of it probably isn't even translated to English, and I would not be able to read it. So there might be some aspect of that, because all of these gods have such diverse aspects. And that gets into right. the the thing we were talking about at the beginning, uh, one but many. And I think this next story, if unless you have more to say about Ganesh, Nate, no, this I next story we we'll really on, get yeah. into that. And this is Sati. As I said, Sati is both the name of the goddess, the second wife of Shiva, and also the name of the the pretty horrific practice of making widows jump on the pyres of their dying of their dead husbands. And the interesting thing is the original story of uh, of Sati, while it does involve her burning up in flames on behalf of her husband, it has nothing to do with the death of her husband. So the story is that Sati and her father did not have the best relationship, but she wanted to go visit her family regardless, because that's what you do. You visit your family. Um, but she hadn't been invited. But she showed up anyways because she wanted to see them. And her father was not exactly happy with this unwanted unwanted arrival because he was mad that she had married Shiva. And that's what she discovered while there. That's why her father was so cold towards her and mad at her because he did not like Shiva. And she wanted to prove that her husband was a worthy god, a worthy husband. And she got so angry with her father that she assumed the celestial form called Adi Shakti. And I think you can notice in there Adi Shakti, the word of feminine destructive power, chaotic energies. And in the form of Adi Shakti, she just really tore through the house, terrorized everyone who was there, and was just destroying stuff, wreaking havoc upon the earth, because all the gods' interactions have collateral damage on the earth. And so all of that was happening, and she cried out in rage, basically, that her next birth, she would be born to a better father who would respect her husband, Shiva. And then Adi Shakti's rage and energy was so powerful that Adi Shakti burnt Sati and destroyed Sati. So... Nate, you remember who what who is Adi Shakti? Yeah, that's that's why I was going silent there for a second. I was trying to do this. So Adi Shakti is Sati. Yes. Isn't she? Okay. Yes. But Adi Shakti's rage and fury burnt Sati and immolated her and destroyed her body. Oh. And it's Shiva recognized this, that Sati was destroyed, and he vowed to never love another woman like that without her and got mad and went on a big thing of destruction because of the destruction of her of his wife yet there is no description of what happened to adi shakti 
So it's really interesting. Did Is Adi Shakti Sati in another form? Or is there something more going on here? Because yes, in one way, they're the same thing. But clearly, they have direct effects on each other. Hmm. And that kind of goes way back to what you're saying in the beginning. You have Brahman, one god, one world spirit being. But also, 330 million gods, three main gods, a bunch of gods that interact and do independent things that affect each other, even though they're all Brahman in the end. Right. And this makes me think of uh, one of the first incidents in the Bhagavad Gita, Mm -hmm. where Krishna is speaking to Arjuna, and Arjuna is anxious about having to kill relatives in you know the great clan battle which that's a whole other story but one of the ways krishna counsels arjuna is with the knowledge that you know his true self his atman or his soul the atman of his relatives and everyone involved in this battle is all eternal and so even though it appears to him as though he is going to be killing them the reality is they're all immortal because they are all Brahman. Because Atman is Brahman, is the insight that Krishna gives to Arjuna. Right. So because of that, he can do this war thing without actually destroying his family. Is that kind of the conclusion? Right. And so the relevance to this story would be how, you know, Sati and Adashakti, while Adashakti can destroy Sati, in a sense, the higher identity of all the gods being emanations and reflections of Brahman means that while it looks like there are many different gods here, there is still ultimately the one reality. Yeah, and you also have like the various incarnations of uh, Vishnu, Krishna, for example. Like you got a lot of those, but it's also all Vishnu, but it's also all separate beings. So this sort of duplicity and unity kind of goes into multiple levels. It's not just the everything the universe on the particular it's also the particulars have particulars right and this is where you know our western formed and educated minds have a really hard time wrapping our heads around this because we like discrete categories and yes it's it's really hard to divide this because our inclination is to divide but built into the system is well any division is on the surface level if you really understood and saw you would see it's all one Yep. And so, many gods, one god. So yeah, is polytheism? the answer monotheistic monotheism? or polytheistic? Yeah, and it's, you know, it can be both and, it can be neither. Yeah, I think I think that's the place we should probably wind up, is that it's both. And that's okay, because their system allows for that. Right. This it's is why I think consistent. it's... Right, internal consistency. And that's why I think it's so important to, when you look at a religion... Try to understand it through its own lens first before you apply critique to it. Because when you bring your own assumptions and presuppositions about how things work, you're probably not going to grasp the sense of it. Because oftentimes, you know, these traditions have been worked over for thousands of years in the minds of, you know, very intelligent people who believe it very devotedly. And they have thought through probably whatever critiques you're going to bring to bear. Yeah, and their answers might be their own, not yours. Right, and so you can't just say, well, it's not possible to be both many gods and one god, because, you know, that's not how ontology and metaphysics function. And then the answer is, well, that's not how your system of ontology and metaphysics functions. Mm -hmm. 
Now, that's not to say that both are true. You know, there is such a thing as an exclusive truth claim. But I think dealing with that should come after you've actually come to a place where you can say, okay, I understand what these people believe. Yeah. From their own point of view. Yeah, it's like that you uh, you can still not be a Hindu. And because, like, I am not a Hindu because I have metaphysical issues with this both and. Right. But I still think it makes sense within itself. So I'm not going to yell at a Hindu for being logically inconsistent because within their own system, they are consistent. Right. But I'm also not going to be a Hindu because I don't find that system as believable as the Western system, personally. Right. And now that you have your own system that you understand and you grasp their system, you can have a conversation about it. Right. So, yeah. Oh, and just to, like, finish this up with another random tidbit, like, the reason all the Hindu gods are blue is because blue is just the color of attractiveness. It's the color of alluring, which is just another random, weird cultural thing that they have and we don't, and we just gotta take it at their own face value. I don't know what you mean about their own cultural thing. Have you ever seen Avatar by James Cameron Austin? (laughs) That is deeply embedded within our own... Yeah, dude, the world of Pandora is deeply embedded in our own cultural conversation and heritage. I, I'm sure you could do a Google search for that and find some people who think that's attractive. That's fair. Um, don't do that. <laughs> Welcome to the world of religions does not support that kind of Google searching. Anyways, <laughs> that was sufficient diversion from normalcy. Yeah. I think it might be about time to wrap this episode up. Yeah, I think so too. This was good. And yeah, we're back and hopefully we'll be posting weekly. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. See you all next time. We'll see whether there are obstacles in the way. Pretty Ganesh. (laughs) See you next time.